0: This is an ABC podcast. It
1: was a very new and sophisticated way of dog whistling. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud.
0: This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide.
1: Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents
0: we need to
2: go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened.
0: Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia.
2: Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne.
0: And I'm David Spears, host of Insiders, uh, filling in for Fran Kelly and joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here at Parliament House in Canberra.
2: Now, this week, the voice debate heated up and the language from the no camp really intensified with opposition leader Peter Dutton suggesting the proposed body would re-racialise Australia. We're going to get into that language and... And the strategy going on here with legendary journalist and political commentator Nikki Savva to dissect the opposition leader strategy. What are the risks for the Anthony Albanese government if it fails and what's going on? But David, let's get to the other things that happened this week. And this week, Australia hosted a very big international guest India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, his visit came off the back of the ad hoc quad meeting on the sidelines of the G7 summit on the weekend in Japan. Most people will recall that the quad meeting was, de- was delayed, was cancelled from Australia because of the US President Joe Biden couldn't come. But the bilateral visit did happen and it was a big deal. Prime Minister Modi says he's hoping to take his relationship with Australia to the next level. Red carpet was quite literally rolled out for him and he was given a rock star welcome. (laughs) No, that's not the sound of a Harry Styles concert, um, but the 20,000 strong crowd at Sydney Olympic Park Stadium, they were there welcoming Narendra Modi. Amid the fanfare, there was time for the 2PMs to sit down and have a bilateral discussion and a real bipartisan show as well. Peter Dutton was also at the event welcoming Modi the next day in, um, uh, in Sydney, and that was a big deal. But David, just to the nuts and bolts, India has the world's mm. largest population. It's one of the fastest growing economies. Just how significant... Was this visit to Australia?
0: Look, this was definitely an important visit for the Albanese government and for the Prime Minister himself, as was his own recent visit to India too, which both had a, a very similar tone of this cheering, whooping, hugs, hysteria. Um, it, it's quite a spectacle, I think, for you know us cynical political observers in Australia to get our heads around. But look, you're right, India is already the world's most populous nation. It's on track to be the third largest economy. So strategically, economically, this is really important. It A counterbalance to China, a closer relationship between Australia and India is terrific. It's not without its difficulties, though. As much as the PM might prefer to avoid talking about those, and uh, you know, we, we can touch on those in a moment. But Anthony Albanese clearly has his eyes on the benefits, both economic and strategic and amidst all the you know bollywood music and the crowds the 2 pms did also get down to some business trade education migration defence a couple of things emerging a new australia india migration and mobility partnership agreement this will be a two way exchange of students and graduates researchers and so on a crackdown on illegal immigration australia hoping that india can help um plug the skills gap in our workforce through this as well and another area of agreements, renewable energy. They've agreed on a new green hydrogen task force. One thing still unresolved but plenty of you know positive words about is the unfinished free trade deal. They want to get this done before the end of the year. So a lot of meat to be discussed there, even though, PK, I think it's fair to say the coverage has almost entirely been about the, the, yeah. uh, the hysteria, as I called it.
2: You can understand why there's been that kind of level of enthusiasm. Australia has a lot to gain from building this relationship economically yeah. uh, and obviously that quad partnership too where, you know elephant in the room, China. I mean, this is a big and important relationship for Australia to build. Now, on some of the more tangible elements, I mean, that free trade agreement, right? There's been a draft of it, but we don't have the full-fledged thing. By the end of the year, I know a lot of experts that I've spoken to are pretty sceptical that that's really going to happen, Mm. even though both sides are talking it up. The Indian election, I think, is going to be a year away or something problematic domestically in terms of how that might play out, especially when you're dealing with difficult areas like agriculture. It's a good idea on paper, but then when you're actually doing the trade-offs, that's where it gets
0: hard. Yeah, it does. And look, you know, a free trade deal or better trade ties with India, this is this has been the sort of um, holy grail that we've been talking about for years and years and years. I remember going there more than a decade ago. I think it was when Labor was last in power. One of the big challenges, um, as the Australian side will always tell you, is the bureaucracy and the layers uh, of provincial bureaucracy, federal, bureaucracy and so on, to to make a trade deal actually work and sweep away a lot of these barriers is not easily done in a place like India. But look, all power to them. The the potential is huge. uh, So they've got to keep chipping away at it. But on the strategic front, you're right to point to China as the elephant in the room. That's what's brought India back to the quad table right? in the last few years and elevated that gathering. They have their border disputes with China that we know all about. What's a bit more awkward, though, is India's relationship with Russia and its rather lukewarm support for Ukraine. That's something that's been a bit of a sensitivity here, hasn't it?
2: Oh, big time. I think that um, the, the kind of more careful language that we use around mm. this topic with India really well, speaks volumes – everyone was saying you need to raise these issues, democracy being perhaps Mm. under pressure in India, Sikh minorities and how they're treated, Muslims, human rights. It seemed to me that the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was probably uh, just wanting this to be a sort of happy conversation. David, I think that's fair to say. Have have I got that right? I think so. And
0: it's it's interesting too to contrast how um, Australia approaches human rights issues in relation to China, where we do now, we haven't always, but we do now uh, call out, uh, and I'm talking about government ministers here, Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, Defence Minister, you know, issues around uh, treatment of Uyghur minority groups in Xinjiang. We talk about democratic freedoms in Hong Kong. We actually speak about the problems. When it comes to India, there's a real reluctance to even, you know, um, name these human rights concerns, which do go to the treatment of uh, of some of the Sikh people, the Muslim people, uh, the press freedom issues. All of this has come up around the visit, but there's a real reluctance to go there and call it out. a far more pragmatic approach from the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister when it comes to India in, you know, uh, pointing out the history that they're, you know, a leader of the, the non-aligned movement. They historically have this tie to Russia. They should be allowed to get on and, and do their thing. We share democratic principles. The two countries are very different, India and China. um, But the way we talk about human rights concerns in in each country, I'm not saying they're of the same scale, but there is a difference there at the moment.
2: On that theme, India really wasn't the only international topic for discussion this week. It's been a sitting week, Senate estimates Mm. have happened, but big international issues, including this visit, have been big themes. The Deputy Prime Minister and the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, as well as the Opposition Leader, Peter Dutton, have both delivered speeches on the rise of of China in our region and their different ways of of managing that strategic difficulty. They they were speaking at the Defending Australia Forum in in Canberra, a news corporation event, and there was agreement there too, wasn't there? There was sort of some... Some overlap, although the nuance a bit different as per usual, right, David?
0: Yeah, there were the usual political point scoring uh, moments from both. Uh, Peter Dutton saying there should have been more money for defence in the Defence Strategic Review. Richard Miles saying, well, the, the coalition didn't back up all their defence announcements with actual money. So, you know, sort of chipping each other for not, you know, putting their hand deep enough in the taxpayer pocket to spend more on defence. Um, but when it comes to China, yeah, there's a, there's a fair degree of similarity there. Um, Peter Dutton, uh, you know, really spoke about diplomacy having its limits um, while we continue with strenuous efforts in diplomacy, he said we must put the accelerator down on defence deterrence, so get cracking with building up our, our military to prepare for what may be coming uh, Richard Miles, to not using you know, that line about diplomacy having its limits, uh, he certainly has expressed his anxiety about what's happening in the region China's activities in the South China Sea it's completely non-transparent military build up, the largest we've seen since the end of World War Two, So, yeah, a, a similar degree of concern, I think, from the two about what we're seeing uh, when it comes to China and the need for Australia to react in the way we are with nuclear submarines and the other missiles and so on, the other elements of the Defence Strategic Review.
2: Now, I'd like to just turn us, if we can, to something big that's happened back home, and that's the growing anger at PwC. Mm. Uh, Now, just the backstory, that's the consulting firm which won, what, $537 million in federal government contracts in just the last two years but is now on the blacklist after it used confidential information from the tax department to help its other clients, which is just so unthinkable, isn't it, David, that they did that. What's the government done now, which really puts this at at a really higher scale in terms of consequence?
0: So there's a few things, and you mentioned blacklist. It's kind of an informal blacklist. We've seen various department chiefs before Senate estimates this week asked about, you know, you're going to keep giving contracts to PwC, and one or two of them have said, look, we can't technically not or ban them. Maybe that's coming. They haven't banned them yet, but They're obviously going to be approaching with a fair degree of caution any contracts for PwC in this environment. But the big news, we're recording this on a Thursday. Last night, the Treasury Secretary referred PwC to the Australian Federal Police for consideration of potential criminal action here as well. So that ratchets things up quite a few notches here. We'll let the police do their job, see what comes of that. But the bigger question, I think, for the government is, do they actually ban PwC from government contracts? Commonwealth is PwC's biggest client, don't forget. But separately, and this sort of predates this particular scandal, we know Labor wants to move away from reliance on uh, contractors and consultancies so much and get get more in-house going. And that's where we saw some beefing up of the public service uh, in the budget, The opposition, incidentally, uh, opposed that uh, increase. But this Mm. is the general trend that Labor wants to follow, is to return to more departmental work rather than reliance on external consultants. People are really angry about that.
2: Yeah, it's so obviously outrageous, right? I think the public... Have tuned into it a little, and mm. the government putting its foot down on it, I think, is really important for them to send a, a message that they take this stuff really seriously.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, listening to David Pocock, the you know, crossbench senator, he was on Q and A during the week, and he really nailed the point here. You know, in terms of explaining what's going on here to a lot of uh, a lot of voters who might might not have taken a great deal of interest in this, you're talking about a company that's taken big you know, chunks of money as consultancy fees to work with the government on these sort of tax reviews, but that's not good enough for them. Those millions aren't good enough. It's then using that confidential information, or information that's meant to be confidential, uh, shopping it around with clients to then make even more money. So it's that greed factor that I think, yeah, Pocock really nailed.
2: It's revolting. Let's bring our guest in, David. Let's do it. <laughs> Nikki Sava, welcome to the party room. Thank you so much
1: for inviting me on again.
0: Great to have you in here, Nikki. Now, look, the spotlight has largely been on foreign affairs this week, which is usually a, a fairly bipartisan affair. Not the case with the voice to Parliament and government, though. Far from it, in fact, this has become an increasingly polarised issue. The debate began on Monday in Parliament on the, the legislation to enable the, the referendum to proceed. And incidentally, um, this, this will pass. The Greens, the crossbenchers will vote for it. The Liberals, too, will vote for it to go ahead so Australians can have their say a referendum, even though we know their official position is to oppose this proposal. Peter Dutton was the first Speaker on the legislation for the opposition. He really didn't hold back. Look, for, for about 10 months or so, he was open to considering whether we should have a constitutionally enshrined voice, but now... He's really throwing everything into the no case. There were the the arguments we've heard about The Voice gumming up the works of government and the courts, but then he he really veered into some of the stuff the National Party's been saying, suggesting that The Voice is going to divide Australia on race, it's going to re-racialise the nation. He he said it's going to make some more equal than others. This referendum on The Voice will undermine our quality of citizenship. It's an overcorrection. It will have an Orwellian effect where all Australians are equal, but some Australians are more equal than others. Nikki, this language, it's stronger than we've heard from Peter Dutton before. What's that all about?
1: Uh, it's all about trying to win votes, isn't it? And destroy the referendum. I think um, that's what, um, is at the root of all this? Uh, I think, David, um, what happened after the Aston by-election, which Labour won and, and the Liberals lost in the most humiliating way possible was that Dutton felt he had to go out there and do something that made him look very tough and very strong and also try to hold his base. So very soon after that, we saw him come out very strongly against the voice. And he has continued to escalate his rhetoric. And I thought that uh, re racializing line, it was a contrived word, right? A, Mm. A manufactured word, which at one and at the same time, tried to warn people that this was going to divide Australia along racial lines, while at the same time seeming to actually encourage that kind of mm. division, to my mind anyway. It was a very new and sophisticated way of dog whistling.
2: Even within the Liberal Party, not everyone on the front bench is emphatically backing the opposition leader's use of language uh, that you've described in a particular way. I had senior moderate Liberal Simon Birmingham on RM breakfast this week, and I asked him if he agreed specifically on that language that it will re-racialise the country. He wouldn't give me a direct answer. Here he is.
0: I have uh, outlined uh, the approach I'm taking to this referendum and the campaign, and that's the approach I'm going to stick to. Uh, and, uh, so you don't agree with him?
1: Uh,
0: Patricia, I'm not going to let you play those word games with me. I'm not trying About to play word games. Mind. You
2: either agree or you disagree.
0: Uh, Patricia, many people will have, uh, have many things that are said during this debate. Uh, I hope that they are all said as respectfully and uh, considered as possible.
2: That was the shadow foreign oh, affairs words. minister, Simon Birmingham, a little bit. And I wasn't genuinely, in terms of my process, I wasn't trying to play word games. But this is a big thing to say, that it will re-racialise our country. And so whether people agree or not in the use of that language is actually quite key, in my view, Nikki. Uh, and for those front benches tied to this party line on The Voice, the language that the, and the rhetoric that the leader is using does matter, doesn't it?
1: Of course it matters um, in A debate that is so sensitive where people should be exercising the utmost care, I believe, on both sides in how they approach it and how they discuss it, it is key, it is vital. And I think when there is this kind of language around, I think it's incumbent on everyone to say, listen, stop and stick to the facts uh, of the matter. And I listened to your interview uh, with Simon the other day. It was excruciating. You know, he couldn't condemn him and he couldn't defend him. And I think that is an untenable position for the leader of the opposition in the Senate and the leading moderate to adopt. Untenable. Well, can we
0: just dwell on this for a moment? Because I found it a fascinating uh, moment as well. And you weren't playing games, PK. That exchange really does highlight what's going on in the Liberal Party, and particularly for those senior moderates. It, it, I think Nikki's right. If, if Simon Birmingham is unable to defend uh, or, or even justify the language that the leader is using, uh, and this is no small matter, right? We're not talking about you know some trivial uh, policy detail here. The charge is this is dividing Australia on race. Yes, it's an argument the Nats, as I've said, have, have been using for a while, really throughout this whole process, but not the Libs. I think Peter Dutton was very careful in the first 10 or so months not to go there. He had plenty of other detailed criticisms, questions, you know, how's the voice going to be constituted? What's it going to weigh in on? And But this really overrides all of that. It makes all of that detail argument look like a side issue. Uh, my question is, was he ever genuinely open to the idea of a constitutionally enshrined voice if he fundamentally believes that it's going to divide Australia on race. I mean, that is a very serious charge. And by going there this week, he's now given the green light for other Liberals to do so, and they've they've done that. I I sat in the chamber and watched uh, that speech and some of the others, and Liberals are all now using that line. Not the moderates, though, uh, and you you could see it there in that very awkward exchange with Simon Birmingham. I I think for those Liberals, and they are very few now, who do publicly support the yes case, you know, speaking to some of them this week, they're dismayed. The whole idea of a Liberals for Yes campaign that we saw with the same-sex marriage issue, it's really fizzling at the moment, struggling to get off the ground, and, and, and that was a real body blow, that, that speech from the leader this week. Bridget Archer did give a really impressive speech too in the House, uh, not mentioning Peter Dutton by name but taking apart all of his arguments, including that one that mm-hmm. is going to divide us by race. So did Julie and Lisa, but they are in such a minority now in the Liberal Party.
1: They are you know the the right wing and uh some would say a few of them are on the extreme right, are dominant in the Liberal Party now, so the moderates, while they don't have numbers, they do have voices, and some of them are using them, as you said, like Bridget Archer, like Julian Lisa, they didn't go out there and you know seek to denigrate people, but they were very clear about what was at stake here.
0: Hmm. What does this hardening of the, the line, though, do for the actual prospects of the referendum? We, we don't see Scott Morrison give too many contributions in the House, but he really went in hard too about this racial division issue. What, what does it do, do you both think, to the prospects of the referendum?
1: That will resonate with certain sections of the community, obviously. Hmm. And I think Dutton was, is in a lot of trouble politically and in terms of his future. And I believe that in order for him to survive, I'm not saying to win, but just to survive, to make it through uh, to the next election, he needs to destroy the referendum. And this is the way he's chosen uh, to do that. He needs to hope that the economy crashes into recession, and he needs to hope that xenophobia rises. And those three things, in a way, are connected because he's appealing in many respects to the worst side of the Australian character.
2: So his strategy, you say, is to destroy it, and that's partly a political strategy also for his own survival. Okay, so just say that happens, and it could, does that shore him up? Doesn't that cause him some electoral damage as well as being depicted by some, perhaps in some parts of Middle Australia, as a wrecker?
1: Of course, um, that is what will happen in the wider electorate. But he's not really, in a sense, looking at mainstream Australia or talking to mainstream Australia. He's talking to other sorts of people in the community, you know, who are a bit uncertain about the referendum and what the voice will do, and then to the darker sections of the Australian Mm. community as well.
0: And I think the polls are suggesting, aren't they, in the last week or two, that the problem with the Yes case so far is that Uncertainty, that dubiousness, um, you know, that caution people have. They're just not sure about how it's all going to work. So it, I think all of this just underscores the need for the yes case to really get cracking, you get on with explaining what this is to people. You know, the clock's ticking. We're looking at less than six months now before this happens.
1: And one of the things I think that is helping drag down the yes case is that they have no actual... Campaign director. There is no one really who is in charge of the campaign. So, uh. They've got a
0: bunch of, Nikki, they've got a bunch of, um, you know, good people from both sides that they've drawn in.
1: Yes, yes, that, that is true. But they need, as in every campaign, election campaign, and this is what this is as well, there has to be one central figure in charge of the campaign, as Paul Erickson was um, with uh, Labor's campaign last year, as Andrew Hurst was uh, with the Liberals, right? There needs to be one person um, issuing the directions, including to the leader, and in this case, there are several leaders in the Indigenous campaign, and I'm not sure that they're as well coordinated as they should be and as on message as they should be. We all know that there are personalities involved here and, and um, you know, a bit of tension here and there. Now, that all has got to stop and there has to be one person in charge Everything has to be coordinated.
2: Now, Nikki, The Voice was obviously a really key pillar of Anthony Albanese's election. And so we talk about Peter Dutton's prospects, but a lot is loaded into it for Anthony Albanese too. What will it mean for his prime ministership as we kind of reflect on a year of Anthony Albanese being in the prime minister's chair?
1: If the referendum is lost, then it will be a body blow. Uh, to Anthony Albanese, I think um, it will damage his authority. (laughs) Everybody keeps saying, you know, the honeymoon is over, the honeymoon is over. Well, not yet, but I do believe that it would be if that happened. I mean, he cannot afford for this referendum to fail for so many reasons Because he has staked so much on it, because failure, it doesn't bear thinking about uh, the recriminations, the kind of recriminations that would flow from that. So I think it would be a very ugly period in politics if the referendum goes down and that will all go back to the prime minister.
0: Nikki, you've you've written this week about the first year of the Albanese government, um, and you know the success that it's had for various reasons. The, you know this has made life hard for the coalition in its first year. Uh, I, I just want to get some reflections on how the coalition and, and Peter Dutton as leader has gone over the first year that they've been in those jobs. I, I did bump into a shadow minister in um, in a lift here in Parliament the other day and said, "Where are you off to?" He said, i oh, after off to." Uh, tip a bucket on The Voice and tip a bucket on Anthony Albanese. And it sort of summed up what what the (laughs) the opposition's been all about for the first 12 months. I am told by others that that there's a lot of policy work. Exactly. (laughs) I'm told there's a lot of policy work going on behind the scenes, um, but the strategic decision is not announcing anything yet because voters are still in love with the Albanese government. They're not looking around at alternatives. That time will come, they expect, as as frustration sets in with cost of living and so on. Look, if that's the strategy, it's not without its risks, but does it make some sense to you, Nikki?
1: Well, uh, in some ways, yes. It is straight out of the Abbott um, playbook from 2010. It's the same kind of strategy. It's a little bit uglier, I think, than it was uh, with Abbott because of all the race issues that are involved at the moment. So uh, I think it does have the potential uh, to go off the rails for them. But I think their biggest mistake was in thinking that after Morrison was defeated and after he was out of the leadership that Liberals would naturally drift back to the Liberal Party. Well, that hasn't happened. So they're now, um, you know, scrambling for a strategy that is going to see them through this next very difficult period and then come out the other side and then hopefully produce all these positive policies that they uh, keep saying they've got in their back pockets.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of promise of more to come. On a couple of fronts, and I'd love to hear from you just on the way that we've seen Peter Dutton approach a couple of issues recently on the unemployment benefit, providing an alternative policy on sports betting, providing an alternative policy. They're little things. It's not sort of the big macro Mm. uh, approach, but they're they're a few things. And they have got a bit of traction, actually. Are we seeing him kind of throw things out to try and see what sticks?
1: There is a bit of that, but they were appealing Small policies, weren't they? You know, people would have been thinking, "Oh, yeah, you know, that that's pretty good." But it really is not about solving the bigger problems. But I think they they went down um, pretty well for him, and certainly internally, liberals were quite happy with his reply to the budget. So that sort of got him through. Um, Uh, a few days and, you know, got a bit of positive publicity out there. But it is or was at a fairly low level. So uh, there hasn't been a real shift in the polls for him. He still rates uh, very lowly. The Liberal primary vote is still way down. So there's a lot more than that that needs to happen.
2: Now, we are recording this on a Thursday morning, Nikki, and um, the sad news overnight that Tina Turner um, has sadly died, and I know that you're a huge fan. Should we go out with your favorite song and what is it?
1: Oh, my favorite all-time Tina song was River Deep Mountain High.
2: I was a little girl, I had a rag. Holy dog, I We'll very much miss her, and she's such a huge icon in the world, but also Australia really playing such a huge role in our own kind of in our own um, sporting campaigns here. You've played a big role in our uh, political sporting campaigns too, Nikki Savage. Do you like how I did that yeah, terrible segue? She's simply, the best, let's face she's it. simply yes. the best, Nikki. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Good Thank pick, you for Nikki. having See
1: me ya. on.
2: See ya. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call
0: to the leader of the opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister.
2: We've had some fiery question times this week. Let's see Mm. if this one's fiery. The bells are ringing and it's time for our question time. And our question comes from Andy. And Andy asks, with regards to financial matters, how much of the backbench discourse are calls for genuine reform and how much is it Labor trying to make a show that they are responsible financial managers making tough decisions and not just spending their way out of problems?
0: This is a good question, Andy, because you know clearly the backbench pressure in the lead up to the budget to do more on job seeker rent assistance, single parenting payment, and so on was very noticeable, and I think quite influential in terms of where things landed. But I think Andy's kind of put his finger on an issue here. We didn't hear from the backbench suggestions as to what reform. Should be undertaken to pay for these things, you know whether it's going back to some of those unpopular tax rises they took to the 2019 election, negative gearing, capital gains tax, and so on. You know, it would be interesting to hear the backbench really start to speak out a bit more on that. We we have a couple of muted, uh, and I've been having a couple of conversations with Labour backbenchers, and they're even privately pretty careful of going there. I've got to say uh, about whether they should return to some of these things. So I, it's a bit of a wait and see, I think, from the backbench at the moment in terms of whether any are going to be bold enough as to suggest they should embrace genuine tax reform to pay for the things that Australians all want. Um,
2: Keep sending your questions in. We love getting them. Uh, The email is thepartyroom at
0: abc.net.au. And remember, follow the Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode.
2: That's it for the Party Room this week. But the Party Room is also taking a little parliamentary winter break. But we will be back in your feeds. So write the date down. I'll give you a second. The 22nd... Of June. So it's like three weeks away. You know why, David? Because you're going to co host with me. So please write it down. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. I'll see you then, PK. See you, David. ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.